We've come together today for the purpose of worshiping our God, because worship matters. It matters to our God. It matters to each of us who are the ones who are proclaiming to God how great He is in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, even in remembering the Lord's Supper and remembering the fact that we have fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another We are grateful for the opportunity to worship God together because, as I said, and as we'll talk about in great detail today, worship matters. Glad you're here today. invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where our good brother read for us a few moments ago. We are going to camp out in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and spend most of our time in that particular text, a text that you may be familiar with. Those of you who are visiting with us or those that are maybe newer to the faith, you may not be familiar with what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 14. That's okay. We'll do our very best to make you familiar with it. And speaking of those who are visiting, we're very thankful for you taking the time to be with us and to encourage us in our work together today. When you think about 1 Corinthians, there are a number of things that may come to mind. Uh, It is a rather lengthy book. It's one of the longest books of the New Testament in terms of epistles. It is one of Paul's more familiar letters. It is one of Paul's more lengthy letters to be coupled with the book of Romans, which also has 16 chapters as we have divided it uh, in the text. And it is also a book that tells us a lot about the problems that were going on with the church at Corinth. And it seems as if there were a series of exchanges, or at least one series of exchange, between the church at Corinth and the apostle Paul in trying to figure out how to deal with difficulties and issues between brethren, between outsiders, between sinful practices. And it is very clear that the church at Corinth had a number of issues or questions that they needed to see addressed by the Apostle Paul, and that's the purpose of 1 Corinthians. It seems to address those letters, or to address those issues in this letter. And so, for example, we have a lot about division and disunity in the first couple of paragraphs of the letter. We find where, indeed, there was a misunderstanding or a misapplication of what to do when you have a difference with your brother or sister in taking them to court, for example, in chapter 6. And then as you drop down to chapter 11, one of the issues that Paul seems to address here was the abuse of worship practices. And chapter 11 is where we often quote when we partake of the Lord's Supper, and rightly so, because this is where Paul says, the things that I receive from the Lord about partaking of the Lord's Supper are things that you need to be reminded of because you're getting some of those things wrong. You're misapplying some of those passages. You are misinterpreting some of those practices, and you are being abusive in the way that you worship with one another. Along that vein, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are almost always studied together in a trio of passages that talk about spiritual gifts and their execution. 
chapter 13 is very familiar to us because that's the love chapter. That's the chapter that talks about even though if I had the power to do all these miracles and to do great things and to speak in tongues, if I do not do it as motivated by love, he says it's as if it's useless. It's, it's like a sound. It's something that is not purposeful. And so when we get to chapter 14, he talks a lot about speaking in tongues. That's not the purpose of our study together today. That's a study in and of itself. But one of the things that particularly in the last two-thirds or three-fourths of chapter 14, which we are not going to take the time to read, but instead we'll pick out about a half a dozen verses to really focus in on, is there are modern lessons to the text and not just contextual or historical ones to be made. That is to say, there are different ways of studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14. One is looking at the problems that they faced at that time. We'll touch on that a little bit. But I want us to go back to the title of our sermon, and that is Worship Matters. You may say, are you saying worship matters, or are you saying worship matters? Well, I'm saying both of those things, because where you put the emphasis changes what we're talking about. But we're talking about all of the things that relate to worship and what we do when we come together today. What I want us to do today is to look at some practical lessons as well as some of the more uh, principled lessons about worshiping God. And I want us to start with four principles of worship. Things that when we come together that we may take for granted because we do it every Sunday, every Lord's Day we come together. Even on Wednesday evening when we come together and we spend 45 minutes in Bible study, we also sing praises to God and we worship our God together in song and in prayer. But I want us to look at four things. Number one, I want us to acknowledge both now and at the conclusion of our services today, at the beginning of our sermon and at the end of the sermon, that worship is not just somewhat about God, but it is all about God. And again, I think we all understand that and we all agree with that. Although I think in the religious world, we sometimes see that worship isn't about God, it's about a pastor, it's about a building, it's about a religious denomination. But we need to acknowledge that the church at Corinth had a problem wherein worship was more about the worshipers than the worshiped one. If you would, go back to chapter 14, where we were reading from earlier, and drop down to about verse 24. He says in verse 24, as Paul is addressing this subject of when you come together to worship, granted in the era of spiritual gifts, which is not our era today, he says in verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Notice the phrase that is used in the text where it says, he will worship God. That's what we do when we come together on occasions like this. We do not worship the song leader. We do not worship the preacher. 
We do not worship our elders. We do not worship our deacons or our Bible class teachers. Nothing wrong with having admiration and appreciation for the men and women who sacrifice and work to make the church function as it does so well, particularly in this and other congregations. But we come together and we worship God. If we were to go and really delve into chapters 12, 13, and 14, it would show that the saints at Corinth had lost sight of this fact, and instead they had gotten more focused on what is in it for me. You see what was happening, and again, we touch on the historical side because it needs to be touched on in chapters 12, 13, and 14, and thus why Paul chose to spend a good 20% of his letter in talking about tongues is that there were spiritual gifts because back then in the first century, brethren had the ability, some did at least, to be able to speak foreign languages without any formal training. Would being able to prophesy and to share some message that was new that others had not been privy to. They didn't have the Bible to open up and to study in a complete and formatted way as we have. And so what ended up happening is someone would come in and say, well, look at me. I'm going to prophesy today and share with you this new message and look how important I am. And we sometimes, if we're not careful, can get trapped into thinking that we are important as well because, hey, I'm the one that's going to preach today. I'm the one that's going to lead singing today. I'm the one that's going to teach today. And we are all servants. We are all simply servants of our God. It's important for us to determine how we worship God. When we want to figure that out, we don't have to look far. Go down to verse 35. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? And then verse 37, to develop the context a little bit further, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And so we need to appreciate how we worship God is the idea of here we are worshiping God today, putting the focus on him. Let us never fall into the trap of what some religious people do. And that is they come together on occasions like this. And as we'll end our sermon today in a few moments, ask, what am I getting out of this? Now, I hope that all of us leave today and we say, I sure got a lot out of that service today. The songs were meaningful and I felt like I was worshiping my God. The sermon helped me to understand some things that I needed to be reminded of. The partaking of the Lord's Supper was done in a way that was very appropriate and orderly. And that we all leave today saying, this was good for us to have been here. But far too often people complain about coming to church services and then leave saying, I didn't get much out of that church service. And that's not the attitude that we are to have. The attitude that we are to have is, what am I going to give to my God in worship to him? Because worship services like this are all about God. Secondly, when we come together to worship our God, edification matters as well. We come together for the purpose of building up 
or constructing or building. That's what the word edification means. Sometimes we use the word edifice in the idea of a building or a structure. I find it interesting to compare words in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 14, verse 28, which is a totally different context, is where Jesus is talking about counting the cost. And he says someone who's going to build a tower must first figure out if he can afford to do so or else he'll be the laughingstock of the community. Well, when he uses the word build in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, it's the same root word as used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so go back to the scripture reading in verses uh, 16 and 17, particularly in verse 17, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other who doesn't understand what's going on because he can't speak that language, the other is not built up or is not edified there in verse 17. Similarly, we go over to about verse 26 of chapter 14, where it says, how is it then, brethren, Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. So here's the problem, Paul says. You, you all come together and all of you have these different spiritual gifts. And you're all standing up at the same time, speaking at the same time. No one's interpreting. There's no order to things. There's no organization. It's just almost chaos when you come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, you are not doing things so that edification can occur. And so he says in verse 26, in the second sentence, let all things be done for edification or for the purpose of building up. Not just some things, but all things. And it's very clear that as you read this particular text and the verses before and the verses after, that the Corinthians were failing to execute in this particular way. Go back to verse 4 where it says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself But he who prophesies edifies the church. The point being there, among other things, is that someone who speaks in a tongue is able to make himself feel good and built up. But what good is that to others where there's no interpretation of that particular language? I mean, it would be like in 2021 today, me getting up and starting to speak Russian. There might be a handful of you that would understand a couple of words, but you would say, you would either say he studied Russian or the spirits come on him. And it's got to be that I've studied Russian because the spirit's not going to come on me and I can't speak Russian. And the fact of the matter is, is if I were to do that and stand up here and talk for the next 20 minutes in Russian, you would say, well, that's just wonderful, but I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't understand what he was saying. I didn't understand what kind of things that he was prophesying or the things that he was sharing. Drop down to verse 16 where our scripture reading was from. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say the word amen? Because when we say amen, it is not just the period at the end of a sentence, but rather it is an acknowledgement that these things are so, these things be said, and these things be true. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. And so the simple message of Paul is this. Anything that distracts or detracts from meaningful worship must be corrected. 
That's a principle that was true in the era of spiritual gifts, and that is a principle that is true even in the era wherein spiritual gifts like tongues and miracles no longer exist. And so anything that is distracting needs to be dealt with. And we appreciate the work of our elders and our deacons, our worship leaders, those who are leading in song, for picking songs that are going to go well with the sermon theme, for having words that are appropriate to the service that we are engaged in. And I was talking with someone just a a few days ago about church dynamics in different places around the country and around the world. You often don't know how well you have it until it's gone. And when it comes to church organization, this is not a perfect church. We have our faults. No one's about to say, well, this is a perfect group. We, We have achieved perfection. This is exactly what Jesus wanted. But, and that's a big but, we have so much to be thankful for at this congregation with men that lead in a way that is respectful, with elders that appreciate things being done in a timely manner, in a well-ordered fashion, and we appreciate that. And so to our elders, to our deacons, to those who are responsible for that, we all collectively say thank you. Thirdly, worship should be meaningful. It should be filled with meaning is another way of saying that. And the fact is, is sometimes worship becomes meaningless if we're not careful. We come together and we want to not just check boxes, sang a few songs, took the Lord's Supper, prayed, dropped a check in the, bo- in, in the basket, listened to a sermon, it was okay. Uh, when David preaches, it's really, really good, uh, but I just checked the boxes of what I'm doing. That's not what we want to do. Worship becomes meaningless when it becomes routine or when it becomes rote. Worship becomes meaningless when it's designed to highlight worship leaders. And I recently talked about pastor-centric churches, where the church is all about the, the pastor, and that word is used inappropriately in, in most cases, and, or where it's all about the preacher. And that's not what we want to be concerned with. And worship becomes meaningless, particularly in chapters 12, 13, and 14, when it is confusing. I want to go back and read verses 15 through 17, and then I want to drop down to verse 27. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. That means that when we pray publicly and privately, that we are supposed to understand what we are saying to our God. The same with our song service. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified." Drop down to about verse 27. We read verse 26 just a few moments ago, but verse 27 says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. And again, we go back to the historical side of things, that you had various individuals who had the ability to speak these foreign languages. 
miraculously, not because they had studied them. We have members of this church who can speak fluent Spanish, who can speak fluent other languages, and that's wonderful that you have that training and that ability, or you were brought up in a household where you were bilingual or whatever the case may have been. But we do not have miraculous ability to speak in tongues today, which we all take for granted as a fact, check, but many in the religious world do not agree with, right? Because there are some who still teach that there is the miraculous ability to speak in tongues. But we know that those days have come to pass as outlined in 1 Corinthians 13, among other places. So what happens here is we need to understand in the first century that you had these multiple people who had these multiple gifts all competing with one another, saying, look at my gift. My gift is more spectacular than your gift. And he says, let that not be the case. So let me suggest the responsibility for how we worship to be meaningful lies with two groups of people. And that lies with, number one, those who are the organizers. That goes back to the elders. That goes back to the deacons. That goes back to who's going to lead prayer, who's going to uh, assign individuals to, to lead singing on this particular occasion. But let me also suggest that this is a responsibility for those of us who are worshipers as well. And that's not to say that those who are the organizers aren't worshiping as well, because we are all worshiping God whether you are the song leader or you are the song singer. We are all engaged in that process of worshiping our God. This should be meaningful. When we come together, it ought to be meaningful, and it should mean something to you and mean something to all persons. And fourthly and finally, as we think about principles, we should be concerned with non-believers as well. Just stick with me for a moment because you may say, well, I may not agree fully with that for reasons that we'll kind of explore over the next three to five minutes. But let me suggest, first of all, that I believe that there's a great danger that lies in only viewing worship through the lens of believers. Now, it is true that when we worship God, our our focus is on God and our focus is on helping fellow believers worship God. And 95% of the people who are here are already Christians, are spiritually-minded men and women who appreciate spiritual things. Someone once said, and I thought this was kind of an interesting phrase, and that is, see worship from a visitor's perspective. Go back to the text, this time to verse 22. If, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, now notice verse 23. If the whole church comes together in one place and speaks with tongues, and and all speak with tongues, and there come in to those who are uninformed or unbelievers... Will they not say that you are out of your mind? So what does this tell me? This tells me, among other things, that I need to be concerned. Let's rewind this here. Let's rephrase this. That the Corinthians needed to be concerned with unbelievers and how they were going to see a worship service wherein multiple people were speaking in different languages. 
I mean, you want to think about it again in Russian terms again. If a visitor were to come to our services today and I go and preach for a half an hour and then someone else gets up and speaks in Russian for a half an hour, you may conclude, well, there must be someone there that speaks Russian. Someone says, no, he just did it for the fun of it. Again, it makes no sense at all. And that would be very confusing to someone who does not understand what we are doing. So when it comes to why are we partaking of the Lord's Supper, and I think we do a a, a good job of making sure that we stress that, especially for the benefit of visitors or non-believers. Paul's concluding command in verse 40 seems to also highlight this particular concept where he says in verse 39, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, do not forbid to speak with tongues. And then verse 40 At the end of the chapter and at the end of this paragraph where Paul is writing, he says, let all things be done decently and in order. And when we do things decently and in order, it helps all people keep their focus where it needs to be. And there is nothing worse than a worship service where you're together for 45 minutes or an hour and you get distracted. We all try to keep ourselves focused, and I want to listen to the message. I want to be engaged in those songs. I want to spend those few moments in partaking of the Lord's Supper directly tied to the text. And we all want to do that, but we want to make sure that we do everything we can to keep the focus where it needs to be. Here's the danger as we segue to our conclusion and the practical side of things, and that is it's possible and I'm guilty of it from time to time in my personal study of the Bible, but it's possible that we only read passages through contextual historical lenses, and we don't think about what does it mean for us. Now, on the flip side, if you only read it for what does it mean to us without thinking about what it meant to them, that's wrong as well. Uh, You have to read biblical texts and say, what did it mean for the people who were living then And apparently, because the Holy Spirit made sure that it's been preserved for thousands of years, it's got to mean something to me as well. Someone might conclude, hey, because spiritual gifts are no longer, because we don't do miracles anymore, because there's no speaking in tongues in a miraculous fashion, the teachings of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 have no real-life application for us today. But I would argue, and I think you will agree with me, that even without the spiritual gifts that were present in the first century and in the time of 1 Corinthians, there are some key important practical lessons for us to learn or at least to notice. And let me conclude with three. These are very practical things, but then we'll circle back and conclude with where we began. But I want us to, number one, when we think about practical matters of worship when we come together, to appreciate what the objective is. This is where I started, and this is where I promised I would come to an end. And that is we've got to be very careful about coming to church services. And I'm using that term a little bit loosely. We all you know, understand what we're talking about. But coming to these services for the purpose of getting something out of worship. We hope that each person comes and gets something out and grows closer to God, closer to their brethren, uh, has a better understanding of Scripture, is inspired by the words of the Lord's Supper uh, talk. But the moment that you ever walk away 
from a service on the Lord's Day, and it crosses your mind, I didn't get much out of today, just pause for a second, because something's not right. Now, we as worship leaders, we as worship participants, those who speak and those who lead songs have an immense responsibility to make sure that we do everything we can to capture your attention as much as possible and keep the focus where it needs to be and make sure the main thing is the main thing. But regardless of what others do, including the worship leaders, I can and I must worship God with all my heart. And on that matter, going back to verse 15 of our text, singing with the Spirit goes a long way. So worshiping God in song like we have done today with understanding, but also with the Spirit matters. So sometimes the songs might be pitched a little bit too low or too high, too fast or too slow. Sometimes the preaching might be a little dry, too long, never too short. Sometimes something's going to happen to get you a little bit distracted, but ultimately, whose responsibility is it to make sure that worship is meaningful for you? The answer goes without saying. Number two, be very careful. This is true in the denominational world, but I would also suggest that this is true in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is be careful about putting the preacher on a pedestal and thinking, well, you know who preaches for us? Don't have an attitude that because your preacher is talented, because you really like the way that I structure things or that David structures things or the way that we work together, be careful not to put us at a place where we are so special that now we start identifying rather than with the truth with Paul and Cephas, and we violate the very principles of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. David and I, I can speak for David, we appreciate so very much the kindness that you show us and you compliment us and you say good job and appreciate your work, appreciate your, uh, all the things that you do. We do appreciate that and we need to hear that. But don't put us at a place where we are now more important than anybody else. We are simply servants. That's what we do. We serve. And we try our very best to serve well, to do no harm, to do all the best that we can do. This was, it seems to me, a very obvious concern of the apostle in chapter 1, as I referenced just a moment or so ago. Many churches, and sometimes churches within our fellowship, will base their entire outreach. And I'm using that word a little bit loosely because that word has been used in some different ways based on their founder or on their pastor. Well, this pastor has been here and built this church from the ground up for the last 27 years, and therefore you should come here. No, you should come here and worship because the truth is being taught and God is being worshiped and because the Bible is being defined as being the only source of authority. That's why you worship here. Even if the preacher isn't that talented and isn't that great, the New Testament never supports this idea. There's no example in the New Testament of this ever happening. And thirdly, let me suggest that we should always be aware of visitors. 
that when someone is new to our community or someone that you haven't met before or someone that's been here for the first time, maybe the second time or the third time, whatever the case may be, let me also suggest that not only do you take notice of those individuals, but especially in larger churches and the bigger we get and the more people we get, sometimes it's difficult to see who's here and who's not here. And was that a new person? Was that an old person? And your eyes begin to uh, deceive yourself as to who these people are. Always assume that there will be visitors. I remember being in a church years ago in a different state, and I cringed when I knew there were visitors who were uh, very susceptible to hopefully having uh, a study and wanting to engage in spiritual discussions. And the person making the announcements innocently got up and said, well, I don't see any visitors today, so we'll go ahead and begin. (laughs) Always assume there are visitors because you never know. And those are individuals that we want to try to influence and we want to try to teach, especially if they're visitors who are not Christians in the sense that they are coming to us wanting to know more about the Lord. The fact is, is some might suggest that visitors shouldn't be our focus. Instead, it's all about the Christians. It's all about the saints that we should be concerned with. And I understand where you're coming from, but I do want to go back to verse 23 of the text where it says, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? It seems to me that the Holy Spirit was at least somewhat concerned with unbelievers within the midst of the Corinthian church. And so we should be as well. And in all things, and this is the responsibility of those of us who preach, those who lead singing, those who even do announcements. Some have said before, and rightly so, that announcements is one of the toughest jobs or roles because you're trying to get everyone focused where they need to be in that first 30 to 60 seconds. And that's difficult. And you don't want to share too much, but you don't want to share too little. And you want to be the very best you can be at doing that particular job. But do our visitors know what we are doing, and do they know why we are doing that? That needs to be something that we think about by doing things decently and in order. I would argue that worship matters, and worship matters today and always. And this is a church that, again, not perfect. We've got our faults. We've got our areas where we need to grow. But let's be thankful for the good things that we have going and work ever more diligently to be men and women who worship our God, whether we are worshipers in the pew or those who are leading to make sure that it is all about God for the purpose of edification, meaningful and beneficial to all, whether you are a child of God or you are new to the faith and you are just in the learning stage. If you're here and you are not worshiping God as you ought to worship him, that may mean because you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you can certainly uh, have spiritual thoughts, but you are not a child of God. And we want you to consider becoming one of his children today by being baptized. If that's something that you're ready to do, to commit yourself to, or if as a child of God you're not living correctly and you want us to to pray for you, to pray with you, to, to study with you, to address some issues that you're concerned about or to talk about becoming a Christian, we'd be happy to do so. Let us know while we stand and sing.